this is Kara Foster from First Christian Church, Disciples of Christ in Madisonville, Kentucky, and you're listening to our sermons podcast. And if you want to find out more information, you can connect with us at www.madisonvilledisciples.org or come in person at 1030 College Drive, uh, Madisonville, Kentucky. Subscribe and enjoy these podcasts. Thank you to all our young people who are sharing their gifts of music this morning with us in worship. And also I wanted to mention I hear that we had some technical difficulties for a brief moment online today. And I want to make sure our church family hears that the flower on our communion table today is in honor and thanksgiving for the life of Robbie Baird. Our prayers are with her family in her time of grief and loss. And we give thanks to God for the gift of Robbie's life. My scripture today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read 20 verses. I'm sure it's one you've heard before, but I invite you to read along with me as we hear God's word to us this day. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinus was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth of Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and the family of David. He went to be registered with Mary to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in that region there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And then the angel of the Lord stood before them and said, Do not be afraid, for see, I'm bringing you good news of great joy for all people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Messiah the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace among whom he favors. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, The shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste, found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. And when they saw this, they made known what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard. Now in the two versions of Jesus' birth from the Gospels in Matthew and Luke, Luke is clearly my favorite. It's nothing against the wise men that Matthew tells us about, but there's something about hearing the news from the shepherds. Shepherds in Jesus' time were rough and tumble. They were considered dirty and unruly. They spent their days and nights living out in the fields. They were living off the land. They lived out on the fringes of society. 
taking care of their sheep, spending long stretches alone in the wilderness. Of course, wise men are outsiders too in a different way. They were non-Jews, likely practitioners of Zoroastrianisms. The scripture says that they were readers of the stars. We are so familiar with this story that we've heard all our lives that we miss the surprise shock value of these cast of characters. A poor young family, unwed, far from home, are visited by a bunch of outsiders. This is the cast of characters who fills your manger scenes, y'all. Emperor Augustus wanted to take a census of the Roman Empire. Political upheaval, citizens being swept into the politics of their moment. This is a story as old as time, still very much happening to this day. Of course, we continue sadly to see record numbers of refugees seeking asylum all around the world. If you want to know just one reason why Christians should care about the plight of refugees around the world today, it's this. It's because we see in the story of Christ's birth a similar situation. Matthew tells us that the very powers that be would be threatened by Jesus' birth. The Holy Family would actually have to flee for their lives in Egypt. The timing of this census requirement could not have been worse for Mary and Joseph. They make their way to Bethlehem, to Joseph's family's ancestral home, and once there, because of the crowds, they can't find a place to stay. There's no room in the end, and they make do. Mary will give birth in a stable and lay her child in a manger in the midst of the smelly, dirty animals. Our Savior is born. It doesn't get much lower than this, does it? Jesus wasn't born in Jerusalem, the city of kings and rulers. He wasn't born into a king's family. There's no silver spoon in his mouth. They didn't have a spoon. They're homeless, far from home, and in a barn. They had to leave work and home and stability caught up in politics of their time and who do the angels proclaim this very news of the Savior's birth to? The shepherds. Shepherds. Have you ever wondered why it was shepherds that first hear this news? Shepherds were dirty, they were rough, I've heard that some villages even banned shepherds from coming into their premises because of the havoc they caused. Why shepherds? Were they just in the right time at the right place? I, I actually think there's more to it than that. I think from the very beginning, we are seeing that God is doing a new thing in Jesus. God is showing us the kind of Savior he will be from the very start. He's showing us who God is in Jesus Christ. He's a Savior for 
the outcast and the nobodies, for the rough and tumble, for the poor and the broken and the holier than thou's, the lost and forsaken and the sinner. He's a savior for the ones who know just how badly they are in need of saving. You know, I read a book in the incarnation study that we're doing this Advent. Um, I read this joke that they had in the book about a little boy who was writing in the year uh, Christmas letter to Jesus. And he starts out his letter and he says, Dear Jesus, I've been good all year. And he scratches that out and he writes, Dear Jesus, I've been good this last six months. And then he thinks, okay, Jesus is going to know that's not the truth. So he says, dear Jesus, I've been good three months, no, three weeks. And finally he, he crumbles up the letter and he walks over to his family's beautiful nativity scene. And he picks up the little Mary figurine off the table and he puts it in his pocket. And then he starts a new letter and says, dear Jesus, if you want to see your mother again, a savior for the ones who know just how badly they need saving. There are two kings in this story, two kings, Caesar and Jesus. One was born with a silver spoon in his mouth in a palace. One was born into poverty and politics. One was famous for killing any threat to his power, one said, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. One ruled with an iron fist, one ruled with an outstretched hand and compassion and mercy. One lived in a palace, one had no home. One used fear, one used love. Two kinds of kings. And from the very beginning of the story, God is showing us that the Savior of the world comes into our world with two probably scared, poor parents in sleepy little Bethlehem. And as the angels proclaim the news to poor nobody and nothing shepherds, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Love came down at Christmas for you and for me. It is as simple as that. Not into some perfect hallmark version of our lives, but right into the mess and brokenness of us. <laughs> into a house with a kitchen sink piled high with dishes into our brokenness and loneliness and our broken hearts and our grief. Love comes to us in Jesus. His love is for you. And you don't have to earn it or deserve it. His love is for you. And I hope you know that. I hope you feel that in the very fiber of your being. Do you know that? For you. There's a story in the book Tattoos on the Heart by Father Gregory Boyle that he tells from his experience in working with people to try to leave life in gangs in Los Angeles. 
And in his book, he tells this story. He says, Looney is a 15-year-old from a gang located not far from our office. He's a chaparrito, barely reaches my chest, and he has just been disorged from one of the 24 probation camps in Los Angeles County. His sentence was six months, but it was his first detention. Having been put on probation first for riding on walls, probation officer cited him for a violation when he quit going to school and sent him away for six months. The ladies in the office order some pizzas to welcome home the prodigal loony. We cram ourselves onto the tiny couch in the sparse reception area and eat our pizza together. All of the office staff join in, and Looney is luminous and giddy in his awkwardness, eyes darting to all of us gathered around, trying to measure our delight in his return. And I'm sitting on the arm of the couch eating my slice when Looney leans in and whispers, can I talk to you, G, privately in your office? He extricates a long envelope squished in a side pocket and proudly slaps it in front of me on my desk. My grades, he announces, from camp. His voice has moved to pre-adolescent octave of excitement. I scurry to join in with the parade. Looney straightens his back and hops in his little chair and says, straight A's. Serial, I say, straight A's. Like a kid fumbling with wrapping on a present, I get the transcript out and extend it open, and sure enough, right there before my eyes, two C's, two B's, one A. And I think, close enough. Not the straightest of A's I've ever seen, but I decide not to tell Looney he's an unreliable reporter here. Wow, mijo, I tell him, bien hecho, nice going. I carefully refold the transcript and put it back in the envelope. And I say, on everything I love, mijo, if you were my son, I'd be the proudest man alive. In a flash, Looney situates his thumbs and fingers in his eye sockets, and he's trembling, wanting to hold back the tears. Like the kid with fingers in the dike, he's shaking now and desperate not to cry. And I look at this little guy and know that he's been returned to a situation that is largely unchanged. His parents are either absent at any given time or plagued by mental illness. Chaos and dysfunction is what will surround him now as before. His grandmother, a good woman, whose task it is now to raise this kid is not quite up to the task. And I know that one month before, I had buried Looney's best friend, who was killed in our streets for no reason at all. So I leave with my gut. I bet you're afraid to be out there, aren't you? And this seems to push play on Looney's buttons, and he begins to cry and he unfolds his arms on my front desk and puts his head down and cries. And I let him cry it out. And finally, after a while, I place my hand on his shoulder. You're going to be okay. Looney sits up, almost defiance, wipes his tears, and says, I just want to have a life. 
Well, mijo, I tell him, who told you you wouldn't have one? Remember the letters you wrote from camp? You told me about the gifts and goodness you have discovered in yourself, things you didn't even know were there. Look, I know you think that right now you're in a deep, dark hole, but you're not. You're in a tunnel. And it's in the nature of tunnels that if you just keep going, the light will show up. You got to believe me, I'm taller than you. I can see it. And Looney sniffles and nods and he seems to listen. I tell him, you're going to be fine. After all, straight A's. Pizza's all around. Looney's home. Amen. Amen.